Hello, and welcome to Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week is our 10th episode. Hard to believe, right? For this episode, our very special guest is David Stout, a correspondent in Pakistan for the French wire service Agence France Presse or AFP. Before we get into that, I realize I often forget to explain the timing of when I recorded my interviews, since I usually post them weeks after recording. For example, my last episode with Brian Rosenthal, it was probably important to know that Jeffrey Epstein had just been arrested, but it was weeks before he killed himself in jail. We probably would have spoken differently about it if we had known. In this interview with Dave, we start by talking about the situation in Kashmir, the disputed territory that is partially administered by Pakistan and partially by India. When we recorded this a few weeks ago, India had just revoked Kashmir's special status, causing a huge uproar and giving Dave a lot to work on at the time. Admittedly, it's receded a bit in the news since then. I really enjoyed this interview and Dave's sometimes oblique approach to stories that led him to the conclusion that the Taliban has unpaid interns. Let's get into it before I say more. Here again is David Stout, an AFP correspondent in Pakistan. Uh, so yeah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Good to good to talk. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's been yeah a couple of years since Hong Kong, but we'll we'll get to that I guess when we get to it. I guess just to set the scene, tell me where you are, kind of give me a little bit of a description of your surroundings, and tell me what kind of week you've had this past week. Well, I'm speaking to you from uh, my home in Islamabad, Pakistan, where I've actually uh, just last week I marked my second year in the country, where I work as a correspondent for Agence France Press. The French press agency, uh, where I covered Pakistan and Afghanistan. You know, a quiet little leafy, leafy uh, neighborhood. Something you don't really think about Pakistan is actually Islamabad's a, a nice kind of place to live. It's kind of removed from the chaos of the country. And the last week in particular has been very chaotic with India revoking uh, the disputed uh, region of Kashmir's special status, at least the part that's under its administration. And that set off the latest diplomatic clash between the two countries, seven years of animosity between them. And most of it's been centered around Kashmir. And this in particular is, is, is seen as something very provocative by Pakistan. At the moment, though, Pakistan is in a place uh, economically, diplomatically, and politically so uh, unstable and, and in a weak position that they're not really able to challenge India like maybe they could have in the past. So that's a lot of what I've been reporting about this last week. I think I did say I've been hearing about it every morning on BBC, which I listen to on my walk to work. But they've been very much reporting the India side, I feel like. What's been going on on the Pakistan side? I don't know the first thing about what's been happening there. To be honest, India announced the decision early last week. Pakistan has responded you know, very vocally, pushing its allies, and uh, particularly China, also reaching out to some of the Gulf states, Malaysia as well, traditional uh, friendships the country's had. And, but, but really, Pakistan has put itself in a position internationally over the last 20, 30 years. It's been seen as a country that, if not tolerates, maybe clandestinely has supported various jihadi groups, many who have fought or been involved in the Kashmir conflict. And so because of that, Pakistan has really um, put itself in a position where it, it has very few friends internationally, I guess you could say, or very few vocal friends. And what we also have right now is a, is a very politically tenuous situation where uh, you have a former cricket star Imran Khan who's running the country. He is overseeing or is watching a vast crackdown on the opposition, which has splintered the country. And most of the opposition leaders are, are in uh, some form of jail or incarceration right now. And 
So the response to the country has been these, you know, really boisterous parliamentary uh, sessions where they're upset about what India has done, but they don't really haven't offered very many options. The country potentially could be sanctioned or blacklisted for supporting or allowing money laundering to international terrorism. They're under the, that threat from Fatif, which is a financial watchdog based in Paris. They're also under a lot of pressure right now to help facilitate the peace talks that are going on with the Taliban in Afghanistan, and they have very little wiggle room right now now to deal with an, seemingly as a more aggressive India under uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Okay, so it seems like it's more on uh, the f- official levels and with sanctions and politicians, but uh, I mean, people weren't taking to the streets and rioting or anything like that, I assume. We didn't see much of that. Protests were pretty small, but it's hard to say, is that because people don't feel as passionate about it because of the, the economic situation, because people are in a tough position? Is it because it's the monsoon season, because it's raining really hard everywhere in the country and it's very hard to have mass demonstrations? when it's raining really hard? Is it because the military is not pushing people out into the streets? Or we really don't know right now. But the person on the ground response has been very lukewarm. The economy is in a really bad place right now in Pakistan. And when you talk to most people, that's their first and foremost concern is inflation, devaluation of the currency, etc. Yeah, that makes sense. So you didn't have, they didn't have to like send you up to Kashmir or anything like that? So uh, we have a stringer that works in Muzaffarabad who's been doing a lot of work up there for uh, recently. I haven't had the chance to go up there. Being a foreign journalist, getting to these places that are considered restricted areas in the country can be very, very difficult. The military has been taking more journalists up to Kashmir as of late. Even though it's, in a sense, quite close to Islamabad, within a few hours' drive, it's, it can be very difficult, especially for an American journalist, to get up there. Gotcha. So you can't just hop in a car and drive there or anything like that? Um, there are large swaths of the country that uh, I would love to go to, but they, they're almost impossible to get to, sadly. Gotcha. Okay. Well, uh, after that dose of uh, what's going on right now, I mean, we usually actually start back with where people are from. So where are you from? Where were you born? So the, uh, the short little uh, bio is I come from Hobbs, New Mexico, very small oiled town in southeast New Mexico. I lived there for 18 years of my life. Uh, even this was also like when growing up in a small town was really like growing up in a small town. It was before the internet was the internet. And, it, you know, in a way it felt very isolated, but it was also like a very tight-knit community. You went to high school football games. There were homecoming parades, etc. In a way it felt like maybe my experience growing up was maybe closer to something that you traditionally think of as in the 1950s or 60s. My father and my grandfather were both attorneys, intelligent men, pushed us to read a lot. They wrote a lot. They were really good public speakers. So there was always some kind of sense of civic engagement, I guess you could say, that I kind of felt growing up. You know, I did, wasn't immediately drawn to journalism as a kid. I think I wrote like one article once for a school paper in sixth grade, like an interview with the principal that I kind of roasted her a bit. And uh, <laughs> other than that, yeah, I was upset about a yo-yo assembly that didn't take place at our school that I had. So that was my first kind of foray into challenging the powers that be. But there was real no interest, you know, when I was in. Uh, high school, I was kind of interested in sciences and environmentalism and things like that. And my kind of plans were when I went to school, I went to the University of Texas in Austin, was to maybe get into like, you know, some kind of environmental engineering and, you know, had these like very earnest hopes about trying to make the world a better place. And, you know, I think it was like my first semester or something or first year, I took some chemistry classes and realized it was my forte, took some writing classes and really enjoyed them. And, Got my first article published in a, in a local magazine, like a startup magazine about the death penalty in Texas and really enjoyed that experience. And the professor kind of encouraged me to maybe look into journalism. So that was my first really kind of maneuvering my life towards that. Sure, sure. And you you have 
Is it just, I met your one brother at Don's wedding, Don Wineland, who was on the podcast before. Do you have other siblings or is it just him? Uh, so I've got an older brother who's an attorney now, actually practicing with my, uh, my father back in Hobbs, New Mexico. My little brother, you know, was erstwhile a photojournalist, him and Don, who you uh, speak about, is on the podcast. They worked together at the Phnom Penh Post years ago in Cambodia. He has since uh, kind of transitioned to the corporate sector, still working in photography and images, but no longer a journalist. And then I also got a younger sister. She lives in my hometown as well. Uh, she works in the insurance sector. Okay, cool. And so why do you go to Texas for college? To be honest, I think I applied to, I don't know, five or six colleges to attend when I was like a junior or senior. I kind of forget when that process actually happened. Now. And I applied to schools in Colorado. I applied to schools in Texas. And that was it. Like I say, you know, uh, I grew up in a small town. I didn't really have super wide horizons. I traveled a little bit with my family growing up. Not not a lot. You know, we had gone to like New York once and California a few times, mostly kind of vacationed in Texas in the summer and always liked Austin. It seemed like a cool place. It also seemed, you know, kind of liberal and funky and I grew up in a quite conservative small town. So I had, that had a lot of appeal. You know, there was no idea of like, oh, this has the best school for this or that. It was just kind of, that was kind of almost as far as my horizons were at the time. Like Austin seemed like the edge of the universe where exciting things happened. And I had, had no idea about traveling to Asia or working abroad. Those just weren't thoughts in my head at that time. Did you end up studying journalism or English or what do you end up studying? And was there a school paper you could work at or how, how did that go down? This is a great story. So yeah, after I took that kind of writing class that I mentioned like my, you know, my freshman year and kind of got some encouragement from the professor to uh, get into journalism. I started taking journalism courses, eventually got into the journalism school and majored in that. I actually tried to work for, there was the Daily Texan, which my little brother ended up working for. And I like tried to work there and they, they didn't hire me. They said I wasn't a good journalist. They didn't think I would like it would work out. <laughs> It was like really disheartening, you know, I was like, wow, like I'm like, they were like kind of letting everybody in the gate and I was already in journalism school and I was writing good articles. And I thought like I had it, you know, and they were just like, nah, like we don't think this is for you kind of thing from like someone who was like my age or younger than me. I never really knew why that, you know, I didn't get hired, but that was always something that kind of like, you know, like kind of fired me up and like really, you know, like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I tried, but it didn't work out. Yeah. You had to prove yourself all the more the chip on your shoulder or whatever. Um, yeah. So did you find some other outlet or what, what did you do? You know, I was always writing a lot of assignments for classes and there were like kind of smaller publications that I would kind of get things in or student run organizations or publications. Like I was getting stuff in, but I wasn't really getting anything major out there. So it was like journalism school in a sense was kind of disheartening. I, I thought I was a good writer. My professors or instructors always told me that I, I, knew, I knew what I was doing, but I, w I wasn't really able to translate that into the real world until I actually you know, kind of graduated, went out and started just working in the profession. And then things kind of started uh, falling into place. Yeah. So you graduate. What happens then? The, the missing puzzle piece in this story is that the summer in between my junior and senior year, I, there was like this like student led documentary film group that I joined. And every summer they picked like a, a country and like, we're going to go to the country. We're going to make like a few documentary shorts and we'll raise all the money we'll do it ourselves. It's very like DIY. And I was very, by happenchance, I heard about this group and applied for and got accepted. It was called Students of the World at the time. Mm -hmm. And I, we did that. We went to Thailand for the summer. We made a series of very short documentaries about like human trafficking uh, along the Thai-Myanmar border. And it was like that trip was really opened my eyes. I was like, wow, this is like my first real big trip internationally. Seeing the you know, dynamics of the country you didn't know anything about or region you didn't know anything about. And after that moment, I came back for my final year at University of Texas, like dead set on going abroad immediately and trying to get a journalism job anywhere 
I could. Like it didn't have to be Asia. I ended up in Asia first teaching a year of English. And then after that, I moved to um, Hanoi, Vietnam, where I got a job working as a copy editor at the state paper. So that was kind of my path, I guess you could say. And did you, when you moved back for the year to teach, was that to Thailand or? Yeah, I lived actually kind of close to where I worked on the documentary stuff. I worked at Mae Long University. I got a fellowship through uh, this program at Princeton called Princeton in Asia. And so I taught like eight months in, in, in Chiang Rai or north of Chiang Rai, which was in like, you know, what they call the, the golden triangle near the borders of Laos and Myanmar. And so I was, you know, I wasn't writing at the time. So like I, I showed up with like a, you know, a stack full of books and this idea that I was going to nurture this passion and me- start meeting people and start finding a way to get into journalism. Sure. And then you get to Hanoi. What's the, what's the state paper there? Uh, Vietnam News. So I was a copy editor. It's similar to these papers like China Daily or whatever. It's these state-backed mouthpieces for the government or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or whatever. Vietnam is a, is a communist-ruled country. There's very little when it comes to the way of freedom of press. So I was like kind of, you know, just editing, you know, various forms of propaganda or, you know, these very stale lifestyle pieces. And the one thing that the paper let me do, they let me do restaurant reviews on the side. My first kind of real forays into international print journalism was going around town and doing food reviews, which at, at the moment was seemed like the coolest thing in the world. I was so happy to even have that. So that was uh, my first 10 steps. And then I started freelancing aside for like some smaller publications in Vietnam and ended up working for a startup magazine, which one of these, you know, monthly glossy, you know, showed off a lot of great photojournalism. And I got to work on very cool lifestyle features that we could get past the censors and did that for a year, year and a half before moving back to Thailand to work for Burmese Exile News Agency. That was in 2012. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I definitely wrote some bar reviews in my early days in China and it seemed so cool and glamorous at the time, but it was yeah, unimaginable. Yeah. So you end up in Thailand reporting for Burmese Media in Exile. Are we talking about the Irrawaddy or are we talking about... Democratic Voice of Burma, which was kind of renowned for its coverage of the Saffron Uprising in 2007 when there was a popular revolt. They kind of had some notoriety because they were, there's a documentary about them that came out called Burma BJ that was quite popular. They'd been nominated for an Oscar. So they were a broadcaster. They had like a a network of clandestine journalists in the country. They would smuggle out footage and then they would broadcast it via satellite back into the country. So that was their bread and butter, but they also had an English website on the side that worked with their big network of journalists. So I ran that for a year and a half. And this was all 2012, 2013, when Burma, Myanmar, whatever you want to call it, was transitioning from complete military state into something that we're looking at now, which is a quasi-democratic state where the military still has enormous sway and power, but there is some semblance of a democratic parliament, etc. So I was there for those early days, and you know, it was an exciting time. It was also very frustrating because the country was opening up, and we were in Thailand, we were the exiles, and people were moving back in, and we were kind of moving in slowly because there were all these considerations to be made for the staff who were Burmese who had left the country, and so, yeah. And is that where you met Charlie Campbell? That is where I met Charlie Campbell. He was working for the rival Irrawaddy at the time, but uh, we became fast friends. I actually, I was the, the best man at his wedding. I told the story uh, when I was giving the speech, like me and Charlie's first real bonding experience was we were going on this embed with Sean Rebels for peace talks in uh, Myanmar and we were at the border and we accidentally like crossed too early before the convoy came to pick us up and we got... <laughs> 
the bridge in between Thailand and Myanmar for a few hours with one of my bosses, and we didn't really know what was going on. And uh, so that was where we kind of the glue for our friendship kind of started to to firm. That's cool. That's cool. So the way he's told it to me is basically everybody was moving back in. Him and his wife kind of decided we don't want to move into Burma, and yeah. that's why they uh, shipped off to Hong Kong. Is that is a similar situation for you? So to be honest, it's almost kind of difficult to remember the exact thought process at the time. You know, I was kind of open to moving to Yangon at, at, at that moment, but the movement of people from Thailand to Burma had started in the company, but it was a very slow and very kind of methodical process. And I was starting to get a bit antsy. And as you mentioned, Charlie had moved to Hong Kong. He had gotten, uh, there's this you know, internship fellowship, whatever they call it now with Time Magazine that he had done. I think it was like a year after he'd lived there or eight months or something like that. He had kind of mentioned that there was like a new, going to be a new opening for that same position he had done. And he encouraged me to apply for it and I got it. So Charlie had kind of shown this path to transition from Burmese media into something more international. So I ended up moving to Hong Kong for that reason in up working at Time for two years alongside Charlie. And then when I was in Hong Kong, I started, then I left Time and started working for AFP where I'm at now. I worked there uh, two years on the desk. So Right. And uh, this is when I met you. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. You were working strange shifts on the desk overnight sometimes. Is that right? Or was it yeah. always overnight? It wasn't always overnight, but the desk at the time was like 24-7. And so, we, you know, it was shift work. You worked, you know, just kind of different odd hours. Sometimes you had really great hours. Sometimes you were working these weird like afternoon to evening shifts. And then once a month or every six weeks, you'd have to do this like graveyard shift for a week where you'd come in at like, you came in at midnight or 1 a.m. or something like that. And you worked till like 7 or 8 in the morning, 7 in the morning, I think. It was like midnight to seven, I think it was. And that was like, you were just kind of there in case something really crazy happened. You know, you were kind of like the the backstop. So yeah, I did that for two years, which was interesting. I never really worked on a news desk in that way, but it was, it was great for as far as like getting to know the company, getting to know the network of journalists that we had, getting to really dive into a lot of different stories in Asia and kind of work with those stories. It was at, during that time where I really realized that Pakistan was where I wanted to, to be based. And I always kind of had my job. My, I always had my eyes on this job that I had now. For whatever reason, I thought Pakistan would be a really great great place to work for a couple of years. And you joined with some sort of promise that you work the desk for a couple of years and they'll they'll send you out into the field. Was it like that going in? I mean, that was kind of the idea. You know, there wasn't a set formula. The idea is if you did a good job on the desk and you were interested in working, you know, as a correspondent somewhere, like it would improve your chances. There's some people who work at the desk and they stay at the desk because they like it or they have family in Hong Kong or whatever. And then there's some people like they very much like, all right, I want to do this for a couple of years. And then I'm like, I want to be out the door and I want to be in the field. So it kind of runs the gambit there. There's some people that are like more permanently stationed and there's others that are cycling through, I guess you could say. Gotcha. And yeah, it's it's interesting because it's the opposite of Reuters. Like the deskers are all the older people who have been reporters for, you know, a decade or something and then go and do it. But I mean, I I definitely see some virtue to the, to the AFP system. Sure. It's interesting mix because there is like that kind of senior editorial leadership on the desk. Then there's like more like junior, like people like me were kind of coming in. So in a way, it kind of works. There's this ebb and flow of the people that are kind of running the show and ultimately have the final call. But then having young people, especially people who've worked in the region kind of there and maybe having like a, some new or fresher contacts on the ground or knowing, you know, just having a bit more idea about new technology or whatever. It, it kind of, in a way, really kind of worked well having the, the young and the old kind of shoulder to shoulder. Cool. Yeah. Did anything notable happen during your two years there? When you're working those crazy hours, it, it turns into a blur quite quickly. So yeah, there were a lot of big stories 
that happened while I was on the desk, but like I wasn't the person on the ground doing it per se. I was the guy on the phone that was being really annoying, asking about commas or can we reword this or stuff like that. So I'm sure you've had your fair amount of experience working with on you know the other side of the phone with deskers. So yeah, there was a lot of interesting stuff happening at the time in Asia, but you know I was kind of a step removed, you could, you could say. Gotcha, gotcha. And uh, before we get into Pakistan, I guess a question I ask everybody is if there was ever a point you didn't think you were going to make it as a journalist. Yeah, I mean, I think like most of my career, I felt that way. I guess every journalist I imagine feels this, most of the people I know, there's always that anxiety, like, am I going to make it to the next level or like a more stable period? The first five or six years of my career in journalism was like bouncing around Southeast Asia, you know, like always kind of, you know, having cool jobs that were interesting, but like, am I ever going to get to a place where I'm uh, working for a big international publication or find something that's more stable or something like that? And, you know, even when I was in Hong Kong, I didn't, I didn't know that I was going to get a position out in the field. And there's always, there, yeah, there was a lot of reflection over the course of my career, like whether I was going to make it work. To me, it's, it's it seems like it's something that's very natural, especially in the kind of climate we are now with a lot of news organizations struggling. You know, it's something that a lot of journalists I've met over the course of my career have they've had moments where like, am I gonna am I gonna flip? Am I gonna do something different now? Am I gonna look into PR or go back to grad school or you know, I I guess I always just stayed on the train and just like kind of hoped it would work out and so far it has. I mean I don't know what the future holds, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, at some point, you've just got to stubbornly stick with it and uh, hope it works out. A lot of dark nights, though, where you're kind of like, whew, I hope this works, man. I've got a lot of eggs in this basket. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was certainly like that before I got my job at Reuters. Like, uh, if that hadn't come along, I don't know what I'd be doing. Uh, and anyway, just to talk a little bit about how I know you. So this is, I met you in Hong Kong. I'd say we probably only hung out like three times. You know, twice I came down and visited. Don, but it was kind of these like we all hung out all weekend and it kind of sticks out in my head because of that. And uh, and then, yeah, the last time I saw you was after our friend Don had left. I think it was just you. And, you yeah. know, you were kind of uh, I don't think you knew you were going to move to Pakistan yet. And you were kind of feeling a little down on your luck. But it must have turned around pretty quick after that. I mean, how how quickly did it all go down? Did you have to apply? Did somebody call you and say, OK, now's your time? Or how did you get to Pakistan? So I forget when you were there. I think you that might have been like December or maybe late November 2016, I'm guessing. And that sounds uh, about right. So yeah, there was actually, you know, there was that. There was also some stuff in my personal life kind of feeling a bit unsettled. And I was I think I was in that mood when I when I saw you. And within a within a few months, the guy who had the job that I had now came to Hong Kong. He had lived in Hong Kong before. And he was like talking with, you know, some senior editors or bosses and stuff. And he had kind of indicated that he'd been in Pakistan for about three years and was kind of ready to move on. And I kind of told him, you know, we were out having a, a drink or something like that, meeting up, and I was like, you know, man, like I've got my eye on that job kind of thing. He's like, Oh, you know, I didn't know that kind of like thing. He's like, Well, you know, if I end up leaving, it'll be open, so you can apply for it if you want to. And sure enough, within like a couple months, he had gotten a new job in the U.S. and was moving there. And his position was then available. And I applied for it, you know, against some very tough competition. And I, to be honest, I didn't really, I kind of didn't think I was going to get it and kind of resigned myself to the fact that uh, this dream of working in Pakistan was going to happen. I actually flew back to the U.S. for my older brother's wedding. And it was then and there that I got an email from the boss saying I got the job. Now, it was a weird thing. And uh 
because I, I didn't, it was my brother's wedding and all the focus was on him. And I kind of thought my parents would be upset if they found out I was moving to Pakistan to work as a journalist. So this whole like, <laughs> kind of time, I just like kept the secret inside me and it was just like burning a hole in me. I was like, this is not the time to bring up that you're about to relocate your whole life to Pakistan. But I won't go to that, but I had to tell my parents at a later day and yeah, they weren't necessarily that thrilled. For sure. Yeah. I mean, all they know is what they see on TV, which is probably, if it's Pakistan, probably not all that much on US TV, and it's probably pretty extreme when it does show up. So, yeah. And there's a saying here that everyone says Pakistan is a hard country, and it is. There is actually a, a lot of great things about living here, but what it kind of shows to the outside world sometimes can be a bit tough. So you had Pakistan in mind before this. Why why Pakistan? Why not, you know, India or Afghanistan or, you know, these other countries? Why Pakistan? I think Part of it was that there was just this allure. I didn't know much about it. It had always been a country that had been in the international spotlight. And there are other countries in Asia and internationally that also have unstable political situations or terrorism or whatever. But Pakistan always seemed to be in the mix. And there was always this like an interesting cast of characters and stories that seemed to be always at, at play in the news. And it also seemed like a, a a better buffer ground than like maybe just going to Afghanistan, which is quite dangerous for journalists to be there. And it seemed like, oh, you know, Pakistan has a lot of those same elements and stories there, but it's just like a tad bit safer, but it's still kind of, you know, a bit edgy and exciting. And I'd always wanted to live in South Asia as well. There's something slightly intimidating about India. It just seems so big and massive, like its own universe. And just for whatever reason, like Pakistan seemed like the sweet spot. And to be honest, since I've been here, it, it, it is. It is a lot of those things I thought it would be. And that's why I've enjoyed being here so much. Cool. Yeah, I'm glad it worked out. So I guess uh, maybe just describe a little bit the setup there. Like, is it just you like working out of an apartment in a compound? Is it a team? Is it how, how does it all work? And it's covered with Afghanistan together. So we've got a big bureau here. AP's had a big bureau here for years, especially since post, you know, post 9-11. Islamabad's always kind of for the company. And oh, in a way, also for international journalists, kind of like an anchor point. So we've got a bureau here. We've got a news editor. We've got me as a correspondent, another Franco correspondent, a big local staff, both in Islamabad and uh, Stringers and uh, across the country. We also help coordinate coverage with Afghanistan. We have a bureau in Kabul, which has its own bureau chief and reporters and stuff. But we work, work very closely and I help edit some of those stories. I help write some of the stories, kind of depending on what is happening, because as you know, Afghanistan, there's a lot of news that's coming out of there, especially recently. And so we're kind of a, a helping hand. And also the nature of Afghanistan and Pakistan, the, the conflicts are kind of intertwined for various reasons maybe we can sp speak about later. So that's kind of the basic setup. Sure. Okay. What do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? Uh, you know, I don't know particularly if there's anything I do better than anybody, but I'm just kind of a, I'm a curious guy and I like kind of stories that are a bit, maybe not so straight on, if that makes any sense. I like writing about food. I like writing about music. I think my early career working kind of in this like featurey lifestyle kind of thing left a pretty big imprint on the way that I write and the way that I conceive stories. Yeah, of course, like you want to write about politics and you want to write about terrorism. You want to write about all these exciting things and place like Pakistan. But I think there's also like really interesting ways to come at that through these kind of lenses. So kind of, I'm always always looking at the story, but like a different backdoor into it, you know, how are these big things affecting maybe these really niche segments of society you wouldn't really think about. So like, for example, like music or food in Pakistan, something I, I think about a lot and how those stories kind of tie into these greater narratives that 
people identify with the country. Cool. Yeah. I mean, seeing it from different angles that might not be so obvious is definitely a good skill to have as a journalist. And you've obviously been abroad for many, many years. Do you feel the pull to go back to the U.S., for example, or how, how do you kind of negotiate that? You know, you'll always have that itch or that feeling of, should I be back home? Should I be thinking about going back home? And whether that's informed or comes from like a professional sense or family and personal stuff. You know, you got brothers and sisters and aging parents and new nephews and stuff like that. So something I always think about, but there's also, I think in the last few years, I've gotten, I feel a bit more secure in that this is kind of my life. This is kind of the the complicated life decision I made years ago. And this is kind of who I am. And uh, for better, for worse, like I live abroad and I work in journalism and I move around a lot. And that allows me to see incredible things and do incredible things and meet fantastic people. But it also means that, you know, certain things that that you would have if you had not left the U.S., more stability, more of a sense of deep roots in one particular community, you you don't have as much. And maybe that's something you've experienced, but that's kind of how I feel. I've definitely come to terms with it. And at this point, it's not like I have a Hob, New Mexico. My folks have picked up sticks and moved to Minnesota, like my two brothers and my parents. So I guess with my older brother having kids, like I feel a bit more of the pull than I used to. But still, I mean, I just don't see it. Yeah, the life being as exciting living in the U.S. I think Maybe it's also that's... fair to say, like, and I've seen this in the decade I've lived abroad, that the world has changed a lot. Technology, uh, the way the internet has changed, everything from smartphones to communication apps like we're using now, like it's changed what it means to live abroad. The world will always be a big place, but it's been made smaller in a lot of ways as well. And the difficulties that maybe people who lived abroad 20, 15 years ago, it, it's definitely different different, I think. Yeah, I would totally agree. And I think that's part of the reason. I mean, my my parents have really come around to it. They see like, oh, you're out there, you're successful. We're not worried about you living in this far-flung place. You've proven you can do it. I'm guessing your family has kind of come around on the Pakistan thing? Uh, it comes in waves, you know, when there is unrest here and things like that. It definitely worries them, uh, you know, especially with a lot of what's happened uh, to journalists in the last few years. We've seen journalists targeted and that worries them and, you know, it should. But I also reassure them that Islamabad is safe and I don't take any unnecessary risks in this job. And um, maybe that's cold comfort. I think they are kind of, you know, they know who I am now. This is the career I've kind of taken, but occasionally Pakistan can unsettle them, that's for sure. Right. And yeah, I guess just to talk about safety real quick, because I'm sure people are curious. I mean, when you're in Islamabad, you know, you don't have to take any particular uh, major precaution. You can walk around, live your life, uh, no issue. Yeah, Islamabad's fine. It's quite quiet. I think a lot of people are surprised when they come here. I have a couple of guards at my house. I don't know that I necessarily need them, to be honest. But yeah, you know, there's other parts of the country where definitely you have to take some precautions. And my colleagues across the border in Afghanistan is a very different situation. Security is paramount there. We actually had two colleagues killed last year in suicide bombings. So that is something that oh, wow. affected us here and definitely an astronomical loss to them there. And um, so safety is something that we think about a lot, especially in these kind of asymmetric kind of combat situations where you have suicide bombers or insurgents using these methods that can put the general public at extraordinary risk. So it's something uh, it's something I think about a lot. But fortunately, in Islamabad, it's a bit of a bubble that I get to live in. And I can kind of let my hair down and not worry so much. 
Cool. And then I guess let's move into talking about some stories. Uh, a question I've started asking is about a story that got away. Does uh, anything come to mind? There was one story in Hong Kong that got away from me that I always really wanted to do. And I pitched it whenever I was at time. You know, I ended up accepting the position at AFP and it kind of fell through the cracks in my last weeks or months there. And then I, and I ended up pitching it again at, at AFP. But it, the same thing happened where I ended up then getting this position in Pakistan. And then your attention changes and you start focusing on other things and Hong, Hong Kong was the home to Kung Fu and I kind of wanted to write about Kung Fu's slow decline slash death in Hong Kong and that it was this traditional martial art that was very much part of the identity of the city. Bruce Lee of course is maybe its most famous practitioner and it really, you know, over the last few years, there wasn't much interest in Kung Fu and uh, that was for a variety of reasons, these kind of big gyms where MMA was becoming popular and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. I always found like this like stirring example when I was kind of doing a little bit of reporting was the triads, the Hong Kong organized crime networks that exist there, that at some point in the 80s, they kind of realized that Kung Fu wasn't a martial art that was good for, for combat or street combat or hand-to-hand fighting. And they started flying in all these Muay Thai champions from Laos and from Thailand. And they, they like started opening all these kind of like rough and tumble gyms in Mong Kok and other places in Kowloon where these kind of street gangsters were learning to fight because they wanted to really know how to to fight. So that kind of started this big process of other martial arts, first Muay Thai, now MMA, be kind of becoming more popular. And this romantic Kung Fu dojos or whatever they're called in Hong Kong were really struggling to find new clientele. I always thought it was just an interesting story about kind of how Hong Kong was changing and how its culture was changing and the influence of big sports like UFC or MMA and also just kind of ground level realities in places like Kowloon. Uh, always the story I wanted to write and never got to write it. And it was like, I, I still think about it because it, it all the elements were there, but for whatever reason, it just, it, you know, it, it got past me. Yeah, yeah, that would have been a good story. I mean, I find that sort of stuff fascinating. There was a period when I was really into reading about triads in college and digging up these weird old texts written by weird old British dudes. But also, like, there was a, used to be congressional hearings and stuff like that in the 80s and 90s on that. I guess you don't hear as much about triads anymore. They've gotten better at branding themselves as not triads, but... Uh, it's well, interesting yeah, that they these, uh, these Hong Kong protests they've kind of reemerged as these whatever street level enforcers that are like attacking the protesters and so in a way they're they're always there and you never know when they're going to pop back up and so like it was within the last few weeks they've kind of returned to the streets in force allegedly this is all allegations of whether these guys right, yeah. remember those, that organization or not I don't know but yeah that would have been cool let's move on to if there's a story you've done in the past few years that you're proud of and just walk me through from how you got the idea how you executed it to even the reaction just kind of from start to finish. Okay. So I was thinking about this question a lot. There's a few that kind of you know, percolated and maybe I'll just talk about this one because it's a good uh, lens to kind of view the region and also the dynamics of what it's like to work here. So within the office, both in, in, in Kabul and in Islamabad, you know, we have to be in touch with insurgents from time to time. When big attacks happen, we've got to check if they're claiming it. Now you've got the Taliban and Afghanistan actively in Involved with talks uh, with the U.S. that would see a potential U.S. withdrawal and maybe a peace deal with the Afghan government. So you're always kind of getting in touch with these guys where guys in the office have like good contacts or they say they have good contacts and they're trading WhatsApp messages or getting, you know, press releases from the group like the Afghan Taliban. So I wanted to do a story um, kind of explaining how their propaganda network worked. And so I partnered up with a guy uh, in our office here who's, you know, is an ethnic Pashtun 
coming from the tribal areas originally, and he has great sources and contacts in that world. I also worked with Cobble Bureau as well. And for a lot of times to make a good story in this region, you got to work with a lot of people, which I think wire services tend to be really good at. Oftentimes you see a byline on a story, but you don't see the team that's behind it. And so for this mm-hmm. story in particular, you know, I was having help with some interviews on the ground with people in Kabul. I was also working with our guy here, speaking to various people. We put together this, what the Taliban's information looked like. And, you know, unsurprisingly, it looks like a lot of media organizations. They rely heavily on interns who are just excited to be there that aren't getting paid. (laughs) That's like a real life force for them. They're also struggling with the digital space and trying to find out how to reach out to the most people and to build up their own kind of image and not just be seen as these cold-blooded terrorists, but these political actors that are whatever they, their goals seem to be or what they like people think they are. Mixed with also just how to deal with outright propaganda. They sometimes will claim things or say they're doing things that they're not. And sometimes they do and say things that are true and will be more honest than maybe the Afghan government or the Pakistan government will be. So the, the article kind of explored it, you know, 800 words or whatever it was, you know, wirelink story, uh, just kind of this complex network of these insurgents like dealing with modern media and also dealing with war and also propaganda, et cetera. So that was a very fun story to work on. It was a very hard story to work on. It dealt with a lot of sensitive sourcing and which can, in, in a place like this can maybe put you at risk, but it was exciting and it got through the desk and the desk really liked it. And there was a lot of jokes about, you know, the use of interns and stuff like that. So that was a, that was a fun story to work on. Cool. Yeah. It came out, I think in February or March, it's a few months ago. And it was at the time, of course, where there's a lot of attention on Afghanistan because the, the Taliban is engaged with the ongoing talks to the U.S. right now. I mean, does any particular anecdote stick out to you? Do you what did you lead off with or anything like that from the story you recall? I haven't read it in, in, in weeks. I just, you know, I remember a lot of the conversations during the reporting and just kind of feeling like you had a better idea of who the people were on the other side, who these insurgents were, what their motivations were. And, you know, because it's a bloody war, because we've seen a lot of unfortunate deaths, a lot of civilians deaths. It's very easy to see the Taliban as a certain thing and terrorists or whatever, you know, the words that could be used in a way that hasn't changed that. But there's also this idea of there's a more human face. There was an intellectual process. There was an idea of, yeah, it was kind of my first time that I, didn't, I don't want to say empathize, but I like, I definitely felt like I learned from the source a bit more of, of where they were coming from. And like I say, that doesn't justify any of the violence or anything of that manner, but it was just kind of eye opening in some ways to have these conversations and to peel away very complex layers of that conflict. Sure. And what what was the reaction? I mean, I imagine any time you write about the Taliban, it could be a bit touchy if you piss them off. What was the reaction like from them and I guess from like the government and things like that to this story? There was no, at least I didn't hear any reaction from any Taliban sources. You know, there were some people on social media that were sharing it. I didn't get any pressure from the government here. You know, it's, I don't know why I didn't, you know, the things that I've gotten pressure for here is interviewing people that are in the opposition, people that are challenging the government uh, politically or asking for greater human rights. That's the times I felt like a lot of pressure for whatever reason, uh, either they didn't realize it or they didn't think it was a big deal. I'll never know. And that's part of the weirdness that comes with living and reporting in Pakistan is that there's some things you do that really upset authorities and bring pressure on you. And then there's other things you do and you don't know why there isn't a similar response. Is it because they aren't 
watching you or they don't care. You'll never really know. And it can be a frustrating process, uh, as you can imagine. Yeah. Still a great story and probably for the best you didn't piss off anybody in the Taliban. Cool. If there's nothing else you want to talk about, usually the next part is something called uh, the lightning round. So yeah, if you're ready, we'll get down to it. Um, Let's do it. So the first question is, what is usually the first thing you check when you wake up in the morning and you grab your phone or your computer? My office email to see if there's anything from the desk or anything immediately that I need to be aware of. And it's a mixture of like checking my email and then kind of getting on Twitter and kind of having a look around uh, news sources, etc. If anything's happened, there's also, you know, we're, uh, various WhatsApp groups that I'm on, if there's any, been any messages about stories. And then once I've kind of cleared those decks, Dawn newspaper, it's an English daily here, I have it delivered to my my house. I go grab that. I start kind of flicking through and that's, yeah, that's kind of how I start my day. You know, it's, it's nice to be in a country where you can have a paper delivered to you, to my house that, you know, it's great reporting from a, a talented staff. As you know, uh, when you're working abroad as a foreign correspondent, there's, there's so much reading of great local journalists who can sometimes, you know, get you interested in a story or topic that maybe you want to be aware of uh, had you not read those reports, which sometimes get re- overshadowed by uh, you know, bigger international media. For sure. I mean, I read a lot of, there's very robust Brazilian media and they'll, you know, just the volume of stuff they put out there. It's just very handy way for keeping track of what's going on in the country. I forgot to ask you, so the main language in Pakistan is Urdu, is that right? Urdu is the national language. There's also um, several other languages as well. Pashto, which is spoken by ethnic Pashtuns, Sindhi, Punjabi, Baloch. I mean, there's a lot of languages here. English is also pretty widely spoken, especially amongst kind of the Pakistani elite. So in Islamabad, English is very, very widely spoken. A lot of street signages, et cetera, are in English. So um, that makes it kind of easier in a lot of ways to get to know people, to figure out what's going on, make friends, make sources, et cetera. Have you tried to learn any of these languages? Does it just not make quite as much sense when everybody, when it's so diverse, like it's not like you learn one language and you can talk to everybody, but you know, yeah. it's kind of... Yeah, it's, it's reg- I regret not spending more time trying to learn Urdu, but the fact that English is very widely spoken in the nature of my job and being Islamabad, it can make you lazy with that. It's not the same as like maybe living in China where you really need to have some kind of fundamental groundwork, uh, knowing the language. Uh, it's, it's much different here in a way much easier and it's made me spoiled and maybe not made me, you know, work as hard trying to, to learn or do. Sure. I understand. Totally. And then let's see, the next question is what is a must read publication that you look at almost every day, but I'll consider that answered with the, that newspaper. And then uh, what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch purely for fun, not related to your job? You know, every week, every Friday, I wait in anticipation of Financial Times Lunch with the FT. It's just a column I've always, a feature that I've always loved for the past few years. I hadn't heard about it until you know, actually late, later in my career. When I was in Hong Kong, we had the paper on the desk. And I always remember the weekend shift, kind of everyone fighting over the FT <laughs> week kitchen. And there's, you know, they're usually with interesting people from a very diverse backgrounds and the writing is always pretty incredible. That's always something I look forward to every week. Cool. Yeah. No, I've, I've heard about that here and there, but I, 
I, I really need to actually read it and see what it's all about. What is the best journalistic article, piece, or whatever you have consumed recently? It's difficult. One of the best books that I've read recently is by a guy who was in Afghanistan, Josh Partlow. His book is called A Kingdom of Their Own. And it's like a dissection of the Karzai family. President Hamid Karzai used to be the leader of the country for several years, especially right after 9-11. He was considered a very pivotal and still is a very pivotal character in the country. And he comes from this big Pashtun family in the south in Kandahar and his brothers and everyone kind of attached to them these massive characters. And the book was just extraordinarily well written. And it kind of provides a lens to understand the country and the conflict from a different angle, you know, from families, from, from tribal loyalties to corruption to more the peels back more layers than just there's terrorists and there's the government and they're fighting. It, it gives a, a really nuanced portrait of the country that I, I found extraordinarily helpful. Cool. I'll have to check that out. A kingdom of their own. Is that right? Yeah. The Karzai family, the Afghan disaster by Josh Partlow. Okay. And then is there any particular subject matter you read into specifically that isn't related to your job? You know, not, not necessarily. I'm always reading. I love fiction. I love books. That's, you know, one of my great passions. I'm always out looking for a new novel or, or something, you know, a new author or, or someone to really kind of dive into. So that's outside of journalism. I guess it's in, in a way it's tied to it, but it's also, I find f- fiction just to be one of the most enjoyable things in the world is to have a good book and to really just dive in and hours to fly by and not even realize it. Yeah, I would agree. I tend to read mostly fiction outside of work just because it's the easiest way to unwind. Nonfiction at any point can seem a bit like work, uh, depending what it is. Yeah, um, yeah. And then we, you mentioned you look at Twitter every day, but would you say, is Twitter important to you? How do you feel about it? Love it, hate it? Do you send a lot of tweets? How do you deal with it? Uh, it's very love-hate. You know, I kind of, I feel like I spend more hours on Twitter every day than I would want to. The, you know, I kind of, that feeling of looking at too much of a computer screen, I think like probably does a lot of people kind of wears you down. But it's also a pretty valuable tool, you know, especially in a place like Pakistan where it's quite popular. Politicians are on it. Activists, you name it. Every, you know, a lot of movers and shakers are on Twitter. A lot of news is being shared there. I share articles that I write. I also share just kind of what I'm reading. I don't think I'm like a big Twitter personality though. I'm not like kind of putting out my views per se or like injecting myself in ongoing arguments. It's more for me. I'm kind of watching those and then just kind of sharing uh, things that I find interesting for whatever reason. Some of it's work-related. Other times it can just be a piece of long form that I just enjoyed for whatever reason and just put it out there. Sure. And then what other social media do you use and how? You know, I've kind of in the last couple of years, I've kind of weaned myself off Facebook. I rarely use it. If anything, it's like a social tool in Pakistan. If you're getting invited to parties and stuff like that, Facebook is still used. But as far as gleaning information from it, not much. I use Instagram because I like to taking photos. You know, I just take pictures with my iPhone, but I really enjoy like getting out there and trying to get a good snap. Other than that, I can't think of much social media that I use like daily. And I think I like I get anybody, social media can be fun and can introduce you to new things, but it's also something I feel like I always, you know, I don't want to be addicted to my phone. I don't want to always constantly looking at scrolling and things like that. So uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a Faustian bargain. Right. Yeah. Let's see. So the next questions are all yes or no questions take them as you will glenn greenwald yes or no maybe not not informed enough yes i read him do i find him to be a controversial guy yes 
I don't know. And maybe that's not the answer you want, but I, I'm not as tuned into Glenn Greenwald as maybe other people are, especially if you're in Brazil. He's a smart guy, but he's a contrarian and he likes to agitate. He's an agitator. Do I always agree with everything he says? No. But is he intelligent? Yes. But, you know, I don't really track him that carefully. I mean, I don't, I also try not to hate read. I know, like, I have a lot of friends who, like, constantly read people they don't like. There's this, like, kind of sick sense <laughs> of, ah, I can, like, this person's, you know, wrong always. Like, I try to avoid that and, I think some people do that with Glenn Greenwald, and I don't. I see his occasional tweets from him, occasional stories, but he's not someone I track closely. Sure. And then Vice Media, yes or no? Uh, sometimes. Sorry. I mean, that's I'm, there's there's great journalists advice that do incredible work, and then there's sometimes you see things that maybe seem a little squirrely. So uh, I'll, I'll take the neutral card on that. Sorry, I'm not 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 so good at this yes or no stuff. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. No worries. Uh, and then WikiLeaks, yes or no? WikiLeaks. I mean, I, I probably guess I have to say no now, unfortunately. But they seemed in the last few years. This isn't a story that I followed super closely, but they've done some irresponsible things. It seems there's the interesting things that you know, as journalists, we've probably both been in from the the cables that were released years ago. Who hasn't dove into those and you know, word searched names and situations and kind of feel like you're looking behind the scenes? But as of late, you know, Julian Assange is a very controversial character. I don't know all the ins and outs, and you know, some people claim that he's you know a russian agent etc i would i don't have enough information to make a claim like that but it definitely seems like they are not a, just a necessarily objective they are they're very much kind of involved and they have an agenda and what that agenda is from day to day i don't know but uh there's someone i would treat cautiously sure uh the wire season five yes or no yes of course yes maybe we can talk about this later but yes. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be divisive just in the fact that, I mean, like, I love the portrayal of the newsroom, but a lot of people are just completely turned off by the guy uh, making up stories. Um, yeah. But uh, I think you've got to give it some credit that it was a journalist writing this. <laughs> the next question, it's kind of hard to be a yes or no question, but just if you have any thoughts about the idea of deplatforming and how you uh, negotiate that deplatforming being like, at what point do you not give a platform to people with certain views that might be extreme, whether it's, you know, climate change deniers or uh, neo-Nazis? Or, I mean, I imagine it must come up with your work in uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan reporting on, you know, pe some people who are viewed as terrorists by much of the world. OK, I'll say this. I'll say uh, n no to deplatforming and maybe I can expound just a little bit in that. Sure. Uh, I do think misinformation is a problem. I think in the last few years, we've really learned that it's, it's, it's not only an issue, but it's also a tool that certain groups or governments use. And it's invading the public space more now than we've ever kind of considered it. But you know, I think deplatforming people or groups, I don't know necessarily if that's the proper tool. I think there's also things that can be gleaned from this information or from propaganda, whether that's insurgent groups and videos they release as uncomfortable or as horrendous as they may be. And it's not for everyone to look at. But for some of us, we rely that information in itself can be useful. And so, I, you know, I think my gut feeling is that, you know, whether it's Alex Jones or whatever, as horrendous as they may be or as nefarious as they might have been, this idea that you can, you know, 
really combat misinformation with taking people off platforms. I think that it's much more complex than that. And disinformation will continue to seep through or, or find new channels. And for the moment, I'm going to say no to, to deplatforming. Okay. Yeah. No, that seems like you've thought it through probably better than I have, honestly. And then the next question is, if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? So, you know, if I had to, you know, when I was uh, my last year of journalism school, I had this, you know, real interest in moving abroad and being a foreign correspondent. Someone I really looked up to and kind of in a way kind of pushed me into moving to Vietnam was David Halberstam. And I loved his writing. I loved the idea, the, the tales of kind of being a foreign journalist in this interesting place in the middle of conflict. It sounded like such a cool life. That was more interesting to me almost than in just kind of doing stories that mattered per se. Like it seemed like it like, was the most fun job you could have. So yeah, him for inspiration, him but also because it seemed like like, you know, he was just always right on the edge of things during that time period. David Halverstein, is that right? And yeah, he was, David a, he was a Vietnam War journalist. Yeah, yeah. He had a, he had a long career afterwards. I guess he's, he kind of came to be known during that period, he wrote a lot of books. He was a great journalist. And anybody who wants just a classic foreign reportage, uh, Google him. Amazon his name or whatever and take it from there. He's you know writes about Vietnam and conflict, but he also writes about basketball and sport in a equally as engaging way. So he's in a way is you know what I find a a good journalist is is someone who's diverse in their uh, curiosities. Cool, yeah, interesting basketball too. What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? This is a tough one, you know, because I think there was like um, you know early on in my career, I just I always had so much anxiety about whether it was going to work out or not. And I don't know if I would go back and tell myself not to worry because I wonder if the anxiety is what pushes you into making tough choices or putting yourself out there even more. You know, I guess maybe I go back and just tell myself to relax a little bit. You're not as old as you think you are. You're still kind of finding your footing. Now, whether that's like a good thing to relax about, I don't know because probably something as you've thought about as well was the anxiety that pushed you into these jobs or, you know, I don't know. But uh, that's something I guess maybe I would think about. Yeah, I deal with that a lot where I was in a lot of places and I was kind of so focused on the next jump. And I, in retrospect, I think like, why didn't I just enjoy it more? It was, uh, there were a lot of good things about it. But at the same time, yeah, would I still be a newspaper reporter in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina? Yeah. Maybe if I had been too content. There was always that, that you know, I did this especially like in my mid-20s, like, you know, you read a, a great story or you'd meet someone who was like kind of more accomplished in their career than you were. And I always was like, how old are they? Like, are they, are they my age? Because if they're my age, man, I'm like, I'm behind. I'm not, I'm not where they're at. Or are they a few years older? Well, in a few years, am I going to be where they're at in their career? I'm going to be doing interesting stuff and out there. So it was, I was always playing that numbers game a lot. You know, whether that helped or not, I don't know. But that was something uh, that kind of drove me crazy there for years. Yeah, same here. Is that an ice cream truck? Yeah, sorry. This ice cream trucks are really loud and, uh, <laughs> Depressive advertising. Sorry for the listeners who got to hear that jingle. That is literally what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like a more like a cart, like half bicycle kind of thing. That's cool. Ice cream truck still out there. <laughs> Not sure if they're still a thing in the U.S. I guess the one thing I was going to say is just, yeah, it's strange how time felt back then and how one year felt like eons in a way that it, it doesn't now that like, you know, the place me and Don worked together, I did, I worked there just shy of two years and it feels like this like sprawling time in my life. Yeah. And it, it really, it was just short. I don't know. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. 
I almost wish I could uh, recapture that in the, the sense of the time feeling longer, but maybe yeah. the anxiety, not as much. <laughs> what is one thing that most people don't know about you? I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of an open book in all honesty. It, it really runs the gambit because, you know, when you live abroad, you got friends kind of all over. Do my friends back home know kind of to the extent of what my job entails now? And do my friends who know me now know to the extent of what it was like kind of coming from a rural background? And when you're thrust upon the international scene, always having these insecurities about not coming from like a, you know, a big American city or coming from an Ivy League school, there was always a lot of insecurity that came with that as well. So in a, in a way, I feel like maybe people from different parts of my life don't know kind of what the other one was like as much, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that does for sure. And what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? Okay, so this is what I was hoping you were going to ask. This is why I want to talk about The Wire again. Sure. It's actually, I find in particular, most movies, a lot of memoirs, et cetera, about journalism to be, I just can't, I cannot do them. And it's because they present journalism in a way that's not been my experience. Particularly movies or TV shows, there's just these like ultra earnest personalities in these like uptight newsrooms where everyone's so like morally guided and so sure of everything. And that is just not how my career has been or the newsrooms that I've worked in have been. And that's why I liked uh, the depiction of the newsroom in The Wire. It's because it was, you know, newsrooms are a place of gallows humor. It's a place of a lot of quips and a lot of, you know, kind of smart alecky talk, but also informed with a lot of kind of jovial camaraderie. So yeah, I, a lot of these, to maybe people who don't work in journals and they, walk, they watch these, you know, kind of big Oscar-worthy films and they're just like, wow, is that what it's really like? And I've never experienced anything like that at all. Now, maybe there are newsrooms that are like that in the world, but A, I hope I never have to work in them, and B, uh, I, I kind of prefer the the gallows humor, just kind of fun, exciting place that a newsroom actually is, you know, a lot, and that's also punctuated with like really intense times as well when big news breaks or tragedy happens. There are dramatic moments, but uh, I feel like a lot of times uh, movies and films or TV shows, they miss out on that and they, they focus on the drama or the earnest kind of side of things a bit too much for my taste. Yeah, I mean, the worst of that is probably the newsroom, man. I hated that show. But like Spotlight, what do you think about that? I mean, the thing is, yes, it's uh, the very earnest part. And I guess the issue is it doesn't show, you know, how these reporters probably had already worked 25 years doing this and that. And this was actually like one big, the one big story that came along and they nailed it and got it right. And we're very yeah, earnest I, about it. I remember, I, I think I watched Spotlight on a plane. I don't have many memories you know, maybe I didn't give it enough of a chance, but it, it didn't make a strong impression. I mean, I, the story was massive. The, the accomplishment was great. There was, I'll, ne I'll never take anything away from it. But uh, like, I, I think I've, I, I've kind of already written off the genre so much that, you know, it was kind of like just a way to fill a couple hours on the on the airplane, to be honest. Sorry, this controversial opinion, maybe. No, no. That said, I remember like when I was like, like before I moved abroad, it's like 21 or 22. And I watched The Year of Living Dangerously with Mel Gibson, you know, baby Mel Gibson. It was about a foreign correspondent working in Indonesia in the like 60s or 70s or something like that. Huh. When I remember, like, like I thought that was really cool. Now, if I watched it again with, like, different eyes and 11, 12 years life experience, being a foreign journalist abroad, maybe it wouldn't be as cool. But I remember at the time thinking, like, oh, you know, it kind of reinforced that whatever narrative I had of reading David Halverson or of kind of this exciting life being in, like, these interesting places and tumultuous situations. So. Huh, yeah, I didn't... I'll have to check that out. I've obviously heard of it. I didn't realize it was about a journalist. 
Okay. And then the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I don't know. You know, it's something I think about a lot because I think about one day, if I exit from journalism, what would I do? I, I always enjoyed teaching. always enjoyed the, the classroom. There's always been an appeal for that to me. One of my mentors at journalism school, he gave me all, he was always giving me a lot of advice. He was in his late seventies at the time, Dr. Gene Bird. And he was always like, you know, whatever you do, don't, don't slow down until you're 40, you know, like, be ready to go anywhere, do anything, be dynamic and be out there. I really took that to heart. And then he was like, but you know, then after that, you know, 40 to 50, you want to consolidate, you want to, you want to take more time for your writing and your thinking, et cetera. And he's like, I, he always said that like the classroom is a good place for that. Now, whether I end up following that exactly, I don't know, but I think there's always been that appeal to especially be around young people and discussing ideas and putting out reading lists. I think that's always been something that like appealed to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get that appeal. And I could say, See, you know, if I hit a certain age, being a journalism professor would probably be pretty awesome. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, that's that's all the questions I've got. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Do you feel good about the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe just going back to uh, something we touched on a little bit during the show and it's kind sure. of giving encouragement to any of the young journalists out there who just feel that, you know, it's such a mammoth task to get in the industry or to work abroad. Keep trucking, I guess is all I can say. And that it may seem insurmountable, but if you want to do it, I think it's worth pursuing. And no matter how, how difficult it is or how small the chances seem like you'll never know until you try and for all the anxiety there's few things that i can imagine doing uh with, you know as far as just getting to travel and meet people it, it really leaves a mark on you for better or for worse just say keep the faith out to the out there to those i think it's something i, I would have liked to have heard you know when i was 24 25 yeah same here i mean i yeah i don't know i guess at some points i was just too stupid to quit and there were so many points where i guess if uh, like i'd been nudged in one direction or another another it wouldn't have worked out but just kind of yeah persistence will eventually pay off even if it seems like it's you know everything's moving very slowly at the time and you're not getting anywhere. But yeah, we're proof that it can happen. Cool. Well, I, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on the show uh, and talking to me. Yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for having me. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with David Stout of AFP in Pakistan. I'll post links to some of the things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave it as a five-star review. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about it. It helps us to get the podcast more attention in Apple Podcasts and other apps. You can find us on Twitter at at foreignpod or tweet about us with hashtag foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. Our show's music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, October 6th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Foreign Correspondence.